Morgan. I'm Isabel. And this is Wellvance. A podcast about romance novels. About names that rhyme with gonorrhea. About murder most foul. About nightgowns. About big strapping families. About finishing governesses. About the hot ton. About not going to Africa. About overcoming your super well-founded fear of having children and just like blowing it up. Your super appropriate fear of having children and thunderstorms. (laughs) About strangely useless plot devices. About getting fingered in an indoor orangery. <laughs> about people with atrocious nicknames. About cousins. But most of all, that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are kicking off a series we like to call Ice Wine. Ice Wine. Talking about romance novels from your mother's generation. And romance writers who would have been writing at that time. Also, Franzia, I would curate in this umbrella. Do you remember those wine coolers that came out before hard mics? I was not alive before hard mics. <laughs> Thanks for that reminder, Morgan. Thank you for keeping it real and dusting off. I remembered nothing before 1998. Two books. That's the earliest memory I have. From my childhood. It's not a joke. It's true. I know it's true. God. I remember many summers watching other people's moms and my own mother. I think you're thinking of uh, Boone's Farm. It wasn't just Boone's Farm, though. God, there were so many. It's like before Zima, before it was repackaged as cool, there were wine coolers that were stupid. But they weren't stupid. They were just the wine coolers that women liked. And then everyone's like, Zima, hard mics. Oh, you don't like beer? It's Mike's hard. Mike's hard. Thank you. Hard mics. (laughs) Mike is hard. Boone's Farm is definitely going to be one of them. I'm sure, but like... It wasn't the only one. I had a specific one in mind, but I can't find it. Anything Orson Welles advertised? Oh, Bartles and James. Bartles and James. Bartles and James. And they came in that weird, cool, they were like often like daiquiris or like margarita or like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a lot of moms drinking that at four o'clock in the afternoon. Bartles and James. Bartles and James. This week we are reading what I would say is appropriately a wine cooler of a romance novel, Devil's Bride by Stephanie. Stephanie Lawrence. Mm-hmm. A sinster novel. Novel of a sinster. Man, she wrote a lot of these. Dude, oh my God. It is a saga. And this is the first in the saga, which is why I started here. Probably also, I mean, we're going to finish here, right? Like, oh yeah. This isn't going to be a whole thing. No, okay, oh my God. Thank God. <laughs> Let's see. We have Devil's Bride. Count them. Can you count them on your finger? Sure. A Rake's Vow. Mm-hmm. Scandal's Bride. Mm-hmm. A Rogue's Proposal. Mm-hmm. A Secret Love. Mm-hmm. All About Love. Mm-hmm. All about passion, mm-hmm. promise and a kiss, mm-hmm. on a wild night, mm-hmm. on a wicked dawn, mm-hmm. the perfect lover, mm-hmm. the ideal bride, mm-hmm. the truth about love. Is that it? Nope, we're still going. Okay. What price love? Price check on I'll love. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> 
14. 14. Yeah. All in the same generation of sinsters, which I think is kind of crazy. Yeah. That there are that many people in that generation who yeah. didn't die of smallpox or you other get, stuff. Well, they progressively get to be deeper and deeper cuts from the first book. Like, they let's do. see who's the final one. Just how much Dylan Caxton, only son of General Caxton and cousin by marriage to Demon Sinster. There you go. Then we're at the cousin by marriages. So, yep, that's pretty deep. Sinster protege before that. Honorary sinsters. <laughs> Such as Michael and Struther Weatherby, who is our heroine's brother. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. He gets his book real late in the series. Yeah. Simon Frederick Sinster. Don't know who that is. That's the younger brother of our murdered character. Okay. Amelia, one of his sisters. Mm-hmm. And Amanda gets hers first. But she was born first, too. Oh, Sebastian Sinster. The Promise and a Kiss is their parents' love story. Oh, that's nice. Chillingworth. Oh, he gets his own? Yeah. I like Chillingworth. I'm not going to lie. I did, too. Fascinating. Lucifer gave Gabriel Demon, Katrina Hennessy, Honorable Scottish Lady. The Hennessys are actually Irish. Yeah. They started making cognac in France. Hmm. Vane. I don't know who she is. Scandal. Richard. Okay. Vane. That's his like right hand. Yeah. He gets a second book. Go figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Saga. Saga. Did you read this prior to us reading it for the show? I have. Yeah. When did you read it first? Six years ago. It was one of the very first books I read on my return to romance after I met somebody who was like, you haven't read a romance novel since you were a teen. Get back on that train. How did you pick this one? She recommended it to me okay and I was like and she's like oh you should give this series a try and I was like give me another one in the series to try I guess and then she gave me perfect lover which is better than this one but oh okay I think this is meatier both in terms of plot although they both revolve around murders murders Um, (laughs) and all of the bad parts are still bad so six and one half dozen the other I think there's more to tear apart in this one than in a perfect lover forget it but we do need to do our customary summary so so our novel opens with our heroine, Honoria. Prudence. Here I go again. <laughs> Honoria sounds like Goneria and Mama Mia. But also they make a point about how the H isn't silent in the book. Honoria. Honoria, which sounds even more like Goneria. Because it's spelled honor, I-A. Honoria. 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 Prudence. Honoria Prudence is talk- Struther Weatherby and Struther Weatherby. She's going by Weatherby only at this time, which we can talk about. But I don't know why we would. It's not really important. Basically, her parents married for love and one of them wasn't well to do and the other one was super well to do. But she is chatting up the vicar. Imagine my excitement. <laughs> uh, but it turns out he's not our hero. She's trying to figure out who the local duke is um, because she's a finishing governess and the family that she is with right now thinks that their daughter is basically destined to marry this duke. She's got to figure out who he is. The vicar's being really difficult. So she decides that she's going to head back. A storm is coming. And she comes upon, in the woods, when she tries to take a shortcut, the dying body of a young man who's been shot in the chest and then uprides our hero, the duke, on a black 
steed. It like Satan himself. Which is such a funny thing to think about. Yes. The idea that like everyone in this era had like a real like hornsy fork tail devil image. The fact that they would imagine the devil as like a gentleman on horseback is also really anyway. So he rides up and he's like, I know this guy, it's my cousin Tolly. Let's take him to the fucking convenient gardener woodsman's cabin. And they spend the night there and Tolly dies and we then go to the devil's perspective. They never call him the devil. Just devil. Just devil. Devil's perspective. And it turns out he's decided he's going to marry Honoria. She will be his bride. So he's very interested in setting up a possible scandal for her. And so he has her employers come up to the cabin and then he's like, check it out. Here she is. Nobody here to chaperone us except this dead body of my young cousin. So what's he's she going to do? shirtless. Yeah, he's shirtless. And she's like, nice try, pal. I'm 25. I'm way too old to be scandalized. I'm going to Africa once I save up enough money from being a finishing governess. You'll have to try again. And he's like, well, you're fired either way. So you have to come stay with me. And then she ends up duchessing her way through the fucking funeral. And then she wants to solve the murder. She thinks that sounds interesting. And then they fall in love and they get married. Solve the murder. And they solve the murder. Although they probably should have solved the murder within the first three chapters like every reader did. It's like the most (laughs) frustrating device that they're like, devil can't remember this one detail about the the murder. And it's also like the one detail about the murder that anyone knows from the book, which is whoever shot Tolly had to be a really great shot. It turned out it was his older brother, Charles, who is the heir to the sinister dukedom. He had plans to kill Devil and Tolly was going to go warn him and Charles killed him and then took the next uh, 500 pages to figure out a way to kill Devil unsuccessfully And then try to kill Honoria because she could have been carrying the new heir. That was a great summary. That's it. I mean, that's what happens. That's the kit and caboodle. Mm -hmm. That's all of it. Some details that are going to be relevant, as you may have guessed already, there are a lot of sinister cousins who all look the exact same, but with different hair colors. The ombre effect of brunettes. (laughs) It's like a Ken doll. Yeah. Switching through their faces. What if they did like the spines of the novels as each cousin's hair color? So it starts off with black because devil has black hair and then just gets progressively lighter. You may not remember this because you were a baby forever, but Cosmo, if you got enough of them, you could build the shape of a man. Yeah. They stopped doing that, which is probably for the best. But I had this friend in college who had enough that she had the V part of the man, like those crazy hat swimmer cutouts, all the way up to like his smiling face, but just the smile. She didn't have like the rest of the face. So it was just like, yeah. So she basically had a romance cover. No, it was just the smile to the not penis. Yeah. Isn't that what romance novel covers do? They are now. When was the last time you saw a pair of eyes? On a romance novel cover? On a man. Oh, it's been a little bit. It's been, been a, a little time. bit. That's weird. So I checked out my copy of Devil's Bride from the library. Brandon commented on, he was like, what? romance novel cover is so boring. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, whenever you see one of these like charming landscapes, there was a secret interior cover with the sexy part. But when you get them from the library, the library editions don't have the sexy interior cover. And he asked me why. And I was like, this is a real sign of our difference in socioeconomic upbringing. Because when I think of people in public, libraries hanging out all I think about is public masturbation that's what happens (laughs) when there's a building that you don't have to buy anything to be in for hours on end free internet and free romance novel covers yeah 
libraries are a great resource for a great many things. And for some people, masturbation is one of those resources. Which is just too bad. Anyways, that's like an aside. I looked up the interior cover and this one is like very dark. It's very black. It has like a black background and has black hair and she has black hair and she's wearing a nightgown. The nightgowns feature really prominently and she has so many different material types of nightgowns. She has silk and satin and then linen. I'm always very interested. Practically transparent silk. Practically transparent linen. It's true. All of her chemises are basically transparent. God, this book though. She's very ethereal. Yeah, she is. She was a super compelling heroine in the beginning. I know. I was like, I hope that she ends up changing his mind and they fall in love and get married because they have to. But then they go go to to Africa. Africa. Yeah. No, she just has his baby. Yep. She just changes her dream to a dream of having a baby. Right, which she's been fighting for almost a decade. Yeah, because her parents and two of her siblings tragically died. Which, by the way, like, Devil makes this leap where he's like, I need to know that you actually want to marry me. Is it not true that you are terrified of loss and you don't want to have a child because the child might die after what happened to your family? And she's like, it is true. And how did you know? How did you know? And I also wanted to be like, yeah, how did he know? That's like a lot of extrapolation. She's scared of storms and he's not like, it's because your family died in a storm. He's like, it's because it reminds you of the possibility of getting pregnant and suffering a loss like you suffered previously. Also, she did actually witness her parents and her two younger siblings as they're coming home in the middle of the storm get struck by lightning and die. Their carriage explodes and she washes their bodies. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. She looks out a tower window and and sees their ragdoll bodies. And the horses are screaming and have to go be killed because their legs are all broken and singed and stuff. It's like actual carnage. It's fucked up. (laughs) When she's riding through the forest, I was like, whoa, this book came to party because she's like, she smelled the blood before she saw it. And I was Mm. like, oh, that's gross. Also, it's a lot of fucking blood if you can smell it before you see it. That's crazy. He was still alive. Yeah, poor Tully. Poor Tully. Didn't even get his cool badass nickname yet. He was still in like short pants in terms of nicknames. He was, but he was already attending to catteries because the sinsters start young. (laughs) That's totally life of the book. Yeah, there's so much happening in this book that I feel is like really rich to lampoon. But I feel like (laughs) the number one thing about this book that I found unpleasurable was like how good it starts. Yeah, yeah. The premise is so good. And then it just fucking falls apart. Honoria has to change all of her dreams and she has to do all this stuff. And like Devil doesn't have to give up anything. Devil doesn't have to do anything except realize that he has a vulnerability and it turns out to be her. Like puke. I was maybe like a third of the way in and I was like, this book very transparently has like a pedagogy Mm -hmm. where it's like teaching you how to what growing up really means and according to the text like growing up means deciding that having a family is the central goal but that actually feeds in really well to like solving a lot of problems like why is romance obsessed with gentry and lordships you know because family is central to that idea and reproduction is central to that idea because you have to maintain you have a larger calling than yourself to maintain you have to produce 
an heir for the estate. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like people's well-being depends on entire city's stability right. depends on your ability to reproduce an heir. Right. So if you but don't like, want to have kids that you can't marry into that. So like if you can imagine being like a young stay-at-home mom reading this, this internality is somehow like manifested in this really material way, which is you have children because it's like a belief in a futurity and like legacy. Yeah, yeah. You want to be a part of something bigger than yourself and then your kid ends up doing a romance novel podcast. (laughs) But I mean, that's what's so interesting to me about this book because it feels very much like it's speaking into the 90s culture wars where it's like women can't have jobs. What happens when women have jobs? What are the kids going to do? They're going to like have rainbow parties and like whatever. Oh, they're going to be who knows what? Bisexual? Oh my God. Clutch your pearls. Tongue rings. They're piercing their tongue. And not just their tongues. Learn more on the five o'clock news. Like this book feels so particular. It's like, oh, it's okay that you had dreams, but now you have to put them away. Yeah, exactly. And wasn't like, your dream nice, but I've got a better dream for you. It's just a guy with a kid crawling on it. <laughs> In front of a fireplace. Yeah. Take it or leave it, bitch, because you're not getting to Africa. Yeah, exactly. Africa is not happening. Well, it's so interesting because she has like a real historical role model, like an actual factual person who did have that lifestyle. And she herself is just biding her time until she's 30. Can you imagine a 25-year-old romance novel character being like, I'm waiting for my life to start once I hit true adulthood? Like, that's pretty rare. And so I was super excited for this book. And no, it, it breaks your heart. It does. It's a real heartbreak. But it is transparently creating a pedagogy. Right. And I think what I find interesting about like this entire Ice Wines project is that like that pedagogy feels like so particular to what romance is so good at, which is answering a cultural moment, either the hysterical part of it or like another part of it. And this yep. like is wading deep into the waters of the conservative clap back to, you know, Hillary Clinton's 1992, I don't make cookies. I'm not the type of one who makes cookies. Yeah. Yeah. And this book is very much saying like Get all f- women are the type of woman who bakes cookies. If they meet the right man. Otherwise, their dreams of politics and travel. Otherwise, they have to settle for Africa <laughs> instead of this older man with a baby crawling on it in front of a fireplace. Then, you know. I bless the rain down and the guy with a baby crawling on it in front of the fireplace. You're right. It's the perfect melding of the rains in Africa and also like, I bless the broken road that led me straight to you. It's like those two things happening at once in this book. Do you know who loves that song God Bless the Broken Road Who Led Me Straight to You who? couples who fight loudly in bars <laughs> I think that might be geographical you know what I mean like I've seen some people fight really loudly in bars it doesn't appear to me that they not like here <laughs> but in other places Missouri for one for one if Kansas you're in Missouri and you're drinking a Bud Light yeah, lime you and your partner's drinking a Bud Heavy mm-hmm. as they so ordered it and you are shouting at each other about your mothers in a bar <laughs> you probably think God Bless the Broken Road that led me straight to you is a good song it also probably played at your wedding <laughs> yeah if you are the type of person who has brought your baby in a diaper into a bar you probably like that song Redneck Woman <laughs> Is that snobbery or is that just a statement of fact? You probably watch Sweet Home Alabama more than once a quarter. And you don't get that joke. You think (laughs) Reese Witherspoon is being the dumbass. Anyway, devil's bread. What a bummer. Yeah, it's a total bummer. Like, I started to know things were going off the rails whenever she invited her brother up to the estate. And he was like, you should marry this fucking dude. And her brother had his little meeting with devil. And then he was like, listen, I'll support you, but I think you got to give this guy a chance. And she's like, well, if my brother wills it... 
then their like whole thing was like, we'll bring her, her brother because he's in charge of her money for the next like two months. And mm-hmm. so she'll have to, even though she's been making money on her own. Yeah, that felt like a betrayal. And what was weird about it, because like it felt like a betrayal when I read it. The book doesn't want you to think it about it as a betrayal. It wants you to think about it as like somebody's in on the scheme. Mm-hmm. And like, that's a weird. Her brother maneuver. has chosen the winning team. So you can trust this. Right. This book is so transparently 90s culture wars because like not infrequently she's like he's an autocrat he's a dictator he's a tyrant I remember writing down like it's so interesting she calls him an autocrat and then that all goes away because he remains all of those things she just learns to live with it and like like it like live with it love it yeah because it's like Stockholm syndrome at that point where it's like she loves her captor right This book does not think of it that way, though. No. But it's weird that it uses that language to, like, cue a villain. Yeah. Who then we have to fall in love with. Because he remains villainous. I remember thinking, like, she's telling me he's like a devil. She's telling me he's autocratic. But I don't remember the book ever being like, he's bad. No, the book is like... He didn't do anything, like, force himself on her or anything mm -mm. like that. he wasn't going to. That was pretty clear. The thing that he did that was autocratic was, like, order her around and then pay for her gowns. I mean, he was was autocratic to his yeah. staff and to his family super duper to his like whole bar sinister yeah he's like gay. he's like big boy on the ballpark yeah with his cousins yeah that's exactly what he felt like but i think this is really interesting murder and romance if you think about like two pieces of culture that is popularly consumed by women it's romance and Almost murder. exclusively by women mm-hmm. and true crime, which women in particular are interested in murder, true crime, like Investigation Discovery Channel, mm-hmm. Lifetime movies. Mm-hmm. But I think like it's not hard to draw a Venn diagram of those two fandoms, as it were, because like who are the victims of those crimes, namely women? Mm-hmm. And then the thing about it is it's like if I can solve this potentially like I'll be safe or like whatever like the intrigue of putting the pieces together is not unlike the joy of putting the relationship together in itself like these are puzzles so when I took my true crime class I think she was teaching at the second or third time and oftentimes professors will like be working on an article through teaching a class and she was trying to work through this idea of like true crime is a pedagogy Mm -hmm. and I think it's really easy to see that a lot of romance is a pedagogy Mm -hmm. if not all of it I really struggled with this idea I've been a true crime fan longer than I've been a romance fan as people who listen regularly or know me personally are aware. I've been thinking about this idea of pedagogy and I really think the pedagogy that aligns the middle of the Venn diagram is your value as a human woman because John Wayne Gacy killed young boys. Jeffrey Dahmer killed young boys and young men. Ted Bundy killed women and people will insist that Ted Bundy was sexy. People will cast Zac Efron as Ted Bundy but I have never seen a picture of Ted Bundy and been like I get it he's handsome like no I've never thought that he also like wasn't a person who had the trappings of a handsome man in his life prior to being known as a serial killer and I think it says killing women is something that we understand like the elimination of women is something that we make legible through not just like pornography as Ted Bundy perhaps at the greatest moment of self-awareness in his life was like, well, I looked at a lot of fucked up porn as a 
a kid, you know? Yeah. That was in no way responsible for all of his choices. I'm not saying that, but it probably wasn't the best thing for him to be looking at. But his like... Sure. But like the objectification of the women. The elimination of women, right? Advertising the elimination of women. Right. And the higher quality of women that you can socially eliminate. Mm-hmm. I think it's just like the uncanny valley. Like something is too real. Like serial killers like that are like too true. Mm-hmm. And like famously, the well not famously, but the Hillside Stranglers explicitly decided that they were going to practice murder on women of color who were sex workers. And they were like, if we get really good at this, we'll try a white teenager. Like that's real. And I think, you know, we kind of talked about it last time. The fact that the original sin of romance is that not every woman can be a heroine. Yep. And romance tells us exactly which women can be a heroine from book to book. And true crime tells us a lot about the kind of woman who is so desirable she must be destroyed. Right. Ted Bundy is like a really easy case study for this because everyone tried to attribute a type to him even though he killed way outside of that type. And they always were like, well, he was always mad at his ex-girlfriend who betrayed him. But it wasn't really beyond the fact that he just liked that physical type. Mm-hmm. I think the Venn diagram of like woman who is heroine is also like woman who then can't be victim or mm-hmm. like couldn't be victimized in the same way that like non-heroines should potentially be victimized and like who can let die and I think like that's an interesting question that we've encountered especially in these ice wine and older Joanna Lindsay doesn't like pull punches with other women you know she's like that woman needs to die because she bad and Mm -hmm. like this is why she deserves it and like you know lays out a case but like that's not altogether that different from the way society views in true crime or like all the time victims right like earlier on the podcast you called it like you know who's less human yeah right and like I think that's right and so like it's weird how these are marshalling that same idea yeah. through like really different trajectories. Yeah. But then the question is like, are they that different? People get super interested in the kind of murders that occur to not victim, right? People we would place like outside of victim. Right. And people are less interested. I mean, they have the term, the term is the less dead are the people who serial killers attack with great regularity who are considered less interesting victims I think maybe it's about being like are you the most interesting victim but like interesting victim then is also like working on the same cylinder as conventional beauty standards Mm -hmm. is working on the same cylinder as like affluence is working on the same cylinder as like beloved and Mm -hmm. not victimized in other roles and like that perfect storm of like what was her name from Aruba Natalie Holloway Natalie Holloway that great stand up joke where he's like you know that girl who went missing um um, from the South Bronx and no how about th- how about that cute blonde girl who went missing from and someone in the audience just goes Natalie Holloway yeah exactly <laughs> it's that and like romance is screaming the same thing but it doesn't end in murder it ends in a wedding but I think they're teaching us the same thing which is this is the right kind of woman to be and the most desirable right even you can the- be so desired that you're murdered or you can be so desired that you're married duchess or dead actually this really <laughs> dovetails nicely because devil's actually a villain and he's our hero and that's shoved down our throat. But there's this one moment in the book where they've already consummated their relationship and they're actually married and they're like hot on the heels of the murderer. And she gets a note. Oh. Yeah. And she's like, and it says, come alone, come to this address. I'm going to tell you something because they're trying to kill your husband. And Mm -hmm. like, I have very specific information. So she goes to this address 
address alone. And then while she's in transit, Devil, who's at his club hanging out and having fun, being like, blah, 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 blah. That's my son. He belongs to three clubs. He's a duke. He has four residences. I don't belong to any clubs. I can't even get into a book club. (laughs) I have this podcast and I can't get into a fucking book club. We can make a book club. I made this podcast because I couldn't get into a book club. This is my silver medal. I think this is a pretty goddamn good silver medal, Morgan. At one of his three rotating clubs, Devil also receives an unsigned note that says, hey, your wife's getting up to some hers business with your number one rival go to his house and see if i'm right number one rival number one name of a person ever chillingworth 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 Chillingworth. (laughs) this is actually a really good moment where like the two timeline thing like as people are in transit like as a convergence is really interesting so she gets there shows up it's chillingsworth all right chillingworth and he's like oh it's you because chillingworth also received a note that's like there's a hot lady of the hot ton who wants to have an assignation with you and he's like ready and he doesn't even have his little waistcoat on he's in his Buckle shirt up. <laughs> yeah. Chillingworth Lots. is down <laughs> Chillingworth is down to fuck she shows up and he's like surprised and in his eyes is even dare we say disappointment yeah and he kind of gives her like a little scolding he's like I thought you were happily married what are you doing here yeah. are you sure are you and sure she's like I'm definitely sure I want this information so she just says yes right and he bends down to kiss her. Chillingworth, always one for the chills, like, okay. All right. You know, I asked. (laughs) (laughs) Due diligence done. (laughs) She punches him in the face because he doesn't have the information that she was promised. And so she punches him and they come to terms and he's like, let me check outside if there's anybody watching because if you leave me unescorted, it's going to look bad. And he doesn't see anybody and he's like, got a broken nose and he feels bad. And she's like, put some ice on it. (laughs) Goes outside. And then, so like, you guys know devil has been racing to this address in his cloak in his cloak and black and sees Chillingworth come out the house in his lawn sleeves and then sees his not quite perfectly coiffed wife also leaving Uh and he loses his mind he takes her up from behind puts her in the carriage and like his interiority in that moment says I could have ended it before I heard the damning information which is to say he was going to strangle his own wife before she could be like hey assignation whatever she's like oh good you're here (laughs) and he's like I am fighting not to murder you which is so fucked up but it's like this is an expression of love murder is not an expression of love in the book it is yeah in this particular text which is what kind of sucks because that whole chapter plays out and it's riveting and it's funny and then it just ends that way because the core of this book is this like really shitty morality yeah <laughs> that just fucks up, ruins all of the super fun, interesting stuff that's happening. I totally bought that she would give up her career and just living with her brother so that she could work on this murder mystery. And her being like, this guy wants to fuck me, so I can probably get him to tell me information and like loop me in on this project. And that she was the type of person who had like an aspiration that was outside of marriage. They were all really interesting characters. Like even Devil's like haughtiness and everything is explained by the fact that he's like, this leader he's been like raised to be this duke and it's almost like a far more realistic depiction of this type of landed character than I've ever seen because right especially in this day and age whenever we have a duke he's kind of like I don't really like it or like all I want to do is provide for my tenants and it's like no this guy likes giving orders has been raised to do it since he 
was born. And that's exactly right. He's a like, boss. He's a boss. He was raised to do it from the cradle. What's so interesting, I think, because you're exactly right, like from far away, this book has all the things that are super interesting and is treating them with a perfect amount of detail and interest. Like his younger brother is called Scandal, which is short for the scandal that never was. He's actually a bastard. But his mother, who couldn't have any more children, decided on the spot this new baby that's been brought into her life is not going to ruin her marriage, is not going to ruin her social standing. And with the force of her great will and great love, she makes what would have been a scandal for the house never was. Yeah, she's fascinating. The choices that are made are all like riveting. The plot is interesting. It's a well-written book. It's just written in a direction that is deeply uncomfortable. Totally. However, I'm a little worried Stephanie Lawrence has never had an orgasm. I highlighted all the best ones. She says it more than once where it's like when they return to this mortal plane. Yeah. Like that's the come down from an orgasm. Or she describes the sensation as a starburst. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's paragraphs upon paragraphs of electricity under her skin. Tangling connectedness. Oneness with the universe. Stars falling off around her and swirls of blue and pink. I'm no longer on the mortal plane. My existential dread has flown. Also, I worry a little bit that Stephanie Lawrence has never like touched a muscly dude because she describes it as being like granite itself. And it's like, that's not... That's not what muscle feels like. That's not what it feels like to be with a hard body. If you're thinking about becoming a big deal romance novelist, please make sure you've had an actual orgasm or just don't write about it. Talk about having fulfilling sex without an orgasm. And also feel up a guy. Definitely touch a man. Yeah. And not like the cold alabaster of statuary, Mm -hmm. which is indeed granite. If you want to write about muscly dudes, touch a muscly dude. Yeah. Just like go to CrossFit and be like, oh, you're so swole. Like, here, let me help you with that medicine ball or whatever it is they do over there. I don't know. You don't have to get fully invested, but like touch one. Yeah. Just so that you know that it isn't as hot as a furnace yet as soft as a peach skin. Just like so you know the bare bones facts. Please touch a muscly man's chest so you don't say it is rocks itself. (laughs) I think that's an actual line in this book. There's so many actual lines in this book. Also, this book is so long. But like, it really falls apart at the sex scenes. See, I agree with you for all but one of them. My sexiest bit, but also the one I felt most corporeal was the orangery underneath the ballroom scene where she's like, you can't leave me like this. They've been making out. Her boobs are out. Her skirt's up at her hips. And he's like, you're right. I can't leave you like this on the days. So he flips her over the couch and there's a full length mirror there for no reason in a place that grows oranges. And um, a day bed. And I was a day picturing bed. a Pier 1 catalog. For sure. But also underneath a ballroom. So I'm like, is this subterranean or is this like... I thought like- it was really sweet that he like, they can't dance because right. he's in mourning. So he takes her below the ballroom floor so, so they, can they can hear can the dance. music. Yeah. That was a lovely little scene. That's a lovely little scene and then and it's literally referred to as like he had to get his demons under rain he puts his full hand in her vagina (laughs) well that's the part okay so like he flips her over the day bed and then he's like watch what I do to you he's just like surrounding her and it's very corporeal he's got like left hand to right breast and right hand to vagina and it's a real twister situation and And she's like she's talking about like sparkles and twisting 
green vines and then he's like keep watching and then he puts his whole hand inside (laughs) of her and then it's a starburst yeah but before the starburst there's like sweat and bodies and areolas they also (laughs) describe her hair as an areola more than once yeah it's so interesting it's like she decided she didn't want it to be a halo and she's like what's another word that's like halo (laughs) areola areola and your nose is the nipple But it also talks about her like breasts becoming engorged. Like her breasts. They were suddenly full. I know. She describes like the breasts like filling with blood, not unlike a penis not when it's a aroused, penis. which is not an experience I've had. My boobs get tingly, but like. From arousal? Full. If they bounce around a lot and like a lot of blood goes there, then they get like hot and kind of heavy with blood. But they don't get like erect. She's describing like a full breast erect. She is. Okay, I'm glad. I thought like maybe it was just me. No, the fullness of the breast was like, it feels like your milk is coming down. That doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've never been pregnant. Oh my God, her milk was coming down. That's But like, that's the sensation that she's talking about. And it's also like the move of like the actual fluid that's filling her breast that she describes. It's like milk coming down. Yeah. Which was weird. The book doesn't say it's like milk coming down, but the book says that her breasts were suddenly full, but that fullness then is like tender and like I don't think she says erect but she says something in she like describes it describes like an erection happening in a breast yeah it's like very the blood weird. rushing and filling it until it's like sure and I like I get like sensitivity like you play with them and like you know there are nerves there but like fullness in the terms of like having more fluid in your breast yeah, it's not like your body is directing blood to your breast tissue. Not in the way that it's directing blood in other places. Yeah, exactly. It's it was weird. It's really weird. And it's one of the cornerstones of every sex scene. Yeah, but not even sex scenes where it's like she'll see him and then suddenly like her corset gets tighter and it's not because like she's short of breath. It's because her boobs have filled up. Yeah, her boobs have filled up. Yeah. Why are your boobs filling with though? Yeah, and I would tell, I would tell myself, I'd be like, oh, because she's breathing heavily. But when the corset wasn't on, same thing. Yeah, but it's like pages and pages of like starlight. Twinkling. You're a planet and I'm a planet and you're also the rings but I'm the rings and then it's a starburst she uses starburst every single time every single time every single time every single time which is interesting because she uses the term return to the mortal coil so I think about that French term un petit mort which means Mm -hmm. like the little death which is a way of describing an orgasm but a star dying is not a little death a starburst is not a small death it's a big death it'll take us all out someday and then create a black hole being uh, life air quotes on earth and then she's like and then they return to the mortal coil. It's so intense. Better than a holocaust of emotion. For sure. But it's not far from it. No, it's in the same family. The sexiest part for me is when they're making out in the library and Mm. they just make out and he touches her boobs a lot. I was like, he's always touching her hips. Mm -hmm. Like, here's a human being who's just like constantly just like... Well, he's always talking about her like velvety curves or something. Her silken curves. Her silken curves. It's like, that's a weird way to describe a curve. Oh, and he talks about one time when she's bending over and her skirt gets tight around her ass. And I was like, does not seem period appropriate. It's not. They're in the Regency period. Her dresses are very flowing. Yeah. I totally was like up for like the gossamer materials, but it wouldn't make sense that her skirt would get tighter around her ass when she bent over. Mm -mm. You could see the outline better, but it wouldn't get 
tight. Yeah, it was one of those books that I was like, there would be like sexy parts and then it would just devolve into nothing. Flower petals raining on their lips. Like, yeah, God. Bullshit. Yeah. Although I will say, yes. And the scene where they're having penetrative sex for the first time, P and V, and he decides that they're going to be in one position and then switch to another to get over the initial virginity hymen problem that historicals love to talk about, even though you're maidenhead. He put his full hand up inside of her. Where's her maidenhead? That thing's gone. Right. But like we have to pretend that like thing it's still there. That thing a rucksack and said, see you later, alligator. I had fun. This was great. No, thank you. Yeah. She no longer has a maidenhead intact. But like, that's the whole thing, right? Like, because your hymen doesn't actually work like saran wrap. So like the idea that like... Like, it would have been breached already is yes. But also, like, it doesn't necessarily have to hurt your first time as long as you're properly aroused. The idea that they would have, like, his entire fist up her vagina made sense because she was super duper aroused. So then, like, the idea of, like, breaching, which gross, a maiden head two days later was silly. But also, like, I liked that this author took a moment to be like, some positions are going to be better for breaching a maiden head than others. But it still talked about her being in like searing pain and having to like wait a while. Which was stupid, but also like interesting that like this was a move that he had decided would be less painful, which was also stupid where it's like, talk to your fucking partner. I want to take a moment Mm -hmm. because having sex for the first time without a hymen, totally fine and normal. Having sex for the first time and it hurts can also be okay. It doesn't mean like you're doing anything wrong. It's really scary. It's really hard. Even if you really want it, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to get comfortable enough. It's hard to be so totally in the moment. But what I'm saying is like this universal idea, especially in historical romances, that your first time has to be traumatic bloodletting, not universally true at all. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But if someone's put their whole fist up your, like the maiden head is gone. Yeah. And the book explicitly states he was having a hard time puncturing her maiden head and it's like and it ain't there it's not there it's yeah. hard to puncture something that was gone for sure also she probably broke it while riding her horse she's an expert horsewoman yeah <laughs> yeah she probably <laughs> broke it putting a tampon in yeah i mean let's be real especially in these like ice wine novels they don't really switch positions that often so i liked that we had a sex scene that started in what is essentially like kneeling cowgirl and then moved into something else i'm like oh that's good good job i feel like that sex scene is also like kind of a perfect metaphor for the problems with this book all sure. wrapped up in one where he like sits down and he pulls her onto his lap and he's like we're gonna take things slowly and you're like oh she's on top like she's gonna have agency yep. over um the first time she's penetrated uh just kidding because he decides it's time so he just thrusts up and pushes her down <laughs> um, yeah good point this book is constantly like the setup is oh this is gonna do something great oh you did something stupid and then she tries to move because she decides even though it hurts she wants to pleasure him he's like no wait and we're supposed to be like what a great guy he knows her body better than she does such a drag it is a drag that is a drag devil's a drag he's also the villain clearly how is he the villain he's just like he's an autocrat he's a dictator he like doesn't care about her agency even when she brings up like really cogent points he's like constantly trying to manipulate her he thought about murdering her when she hadn't even done anything I think that Charles is so obviously the villain, though. Yeah, I know. Because he's, like, literally the only one who doesn't fit in. He's the only one who doesn't fit in. And this is a book that definitely believes that fitting in 
is important. Yep. He doesn't have a nickname. Doesn't have a nickname. He also offers our heroine his hand instead of devils. And he's like, I'm going to save you from this guy. And then it's like, oh, he's bad. That and like the madam stuff where they're like, okay, we're going to go to like all of the catteries that Tolly frequents. And then she's like, do you go to those ladies of the night? She's like, oh, he was only 20. And then devil is like, oh, we start young in the sinsters. And then later in the book, she's like, are you familiar with these catteries? He's like, a sinster would never pay for it. Yeah, literally what he says. <laughs> yes. And that was also another thing about this book where it's like the awful rumor is that the sinster has been frequenting the brothels, but also like the fanciest brothels of the ton. All the sinsters are like, it's not me, it's not me. It's like, we have a reputation for not paying for it because like, whatever. And then they're all like weird and ashamed. Like, it's not me, but it's also like, obviously these are the human beings who would be frequenting sex workers at this time. But also earlier in the book, He's like, we got to go check out these brothels because he was definitely hitting it there. And she's like, no, why? He was only a kid. And he's like, we start early. Yeah. So it's like you, you only do it until you're it's like just 22. It's just plot inconsistency. <laughs> you're right. I mean, it is. <laughs> but also, it's such a long book. You just can't get it's everything right. It's a really right. long book. I skipped a lot of it. That's fair because you didn't miss much. Well, no, because like I knew Charles had done it. Mm-hmm. No one else could have. And also it like kept doing that dumb thing where it was like, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And it was like, it's Charles. It's Charles. It's like, well, I wish I could remember that one detail of the murder that just keeps evading me. And it's like, it's a button. Somebody say button. It was one of the worst murder mysteries I've ever read. Yes. Weirdest part. Mm, so many. I want to talk about a weird part that we've kind of touched on. Sure. But we haven't fully fleshed out. So anachronisms abound, abound. in historical romance. Full Indeed. stop. Yes. But this book had that particularity of muddling the clothes, period appropriate clothing, and the moment it was written in. There's this part where she gets a robe trimmed in feathers. You've seen it. You know, the kind, like, you can get one at Fenty, Savage by Fenty right now if you want. But it's not a thing. Like, you wouldn't have a see-through robe trimmed with feathers in this period. In 1998, you would have one. And there's this scene where she, like, runs out in a robe trimmed in feathers. Also the idea that like this skirt gets tighter on her ass when she bends over. That's a clothing anachronism I found unforgivable. She talks about how she's wearing at her first impromptu ball, which was a really interesting idea. And the guys coming in and cycling through and requesting their mistresses. I thought that was really interesting, funny. And once again, one of those times when this book was good and only to be terrible. But she's talking about how she's wearing this like gossamer, this like loose, almost sheer linen, which was period appropriate people don't talk about enough then she's like her grecian gown was fastened only at one shoulder and i was like that wouldn't have happened that's anachronistic for ancient greek attire like for sure one of the things that i found really strange was like those kind of anachronisms but also then this like crazy attention to detail in other places yeah like impromptu balls who can do the inviting and who can't also the morning rituals i'm glad that you brought this up because like the morning rituals of how long you get to be in mourning what you wear yeah, when you're so in mourning. Fascinating. Yeah, and like so that you would wear uncomfortable, heavy fabrics in the first 
period of mourning. Yeah. Where it's all like, black. All black. You're bas- all black uncomfortable. Right. Like you're wearing sailcloth and then you move to comfortable blacks like black silks and then you move into like lavenders and grays. Grays. And then all of the men are wearing a black armband which is something that I wish that we still participated in where Instagram and other places are like you never know what anybody's going through and I'm like they had a fix for that before where like you could wear your grief on your sleeve where then people would treat you differently. And like maybe if you wanted that that was cool and maybe if you didn't that was hard but like whatever. But also that you would wrap your door in black crepe to show that you were not receiving visitors and that like the way in which you would enter back out of mourning was an excellent plot device of keeping everybody really close. You would go to a ball but you wouldn't dance. Dance. Yeah and like all of that was really fascinating to me. The performance of public grief. Yes I thought all of those social details in this book as far as balls go was really interesting to Mm -hmm. me. And town and like how they scheduled their year. Like I haven't read a romance novel that so clearly laid out the season. You go to the season and then you go home and then you go to Christmas and then you go to this. Yeah and you're back by Michaelmas. Yeah and did a great job of that. I just feel like if you're gonna like the most fun thing to research I think would be the clothes. They did the morning clothes. I mean, Stephanie Lorenz was like, I want to talk about black uncomfortable crepe. But she blew it on everything that wasn't morning clothing. Totally. But I think like that's maybe the thing about romance in the 90s where it's like, I'm writing for a modern audience. How do I clue them in that my heroine is an analog for that? I'm going to give them something that they're wearing right now. Ha ha ha. Or like like their understanding of what they're wearing. Right. Or like, this is sexy. People are going to know she's sexy. She's wearing a feather trimmed it just seems so lazy yeah I don't know that it was lazy although it does feel that way I think it was deliberate but I don't know why like I have suppositions I want to hear about your weirdest part my weirdest part was as we've kind of talked about like this whole pedagogy of like putting your dreams away and getting married and settled down as like the apex of whatever but like she had a really good plan for getting to Egypt and then the Ivory Coast and she gave it up in four weeks after planning it for years. And that felt weird and trite and terrible. Yeah, and also the fact that he didn't ever acknowledge like, hey, this is a good idea. There's something like almost anti-African about the fact that like, I think if she would have been like, my dream is to go to France, he would have been like, let's go to France. So we'll spend a year there. Yeah, but like the fact that she wanted to go to Africa was seen as like absurd, even though... Absurd is exactly right. Even though at the time, you know, like England was beginning to consolidate power everywhere. And not the least of which had, as we talked about, there was an actual British woman contemporary of this character who'd already gone and done that and had become a little bit famous writing her travel log. So that was like one of my weird things where like, if he loves her so much, wouldn't he go with her? Wouldn't he like make that dream possible? Wouldn't that be a thing that they could do together? That would be so fun. Devil's been all over the country, but it doesn't seem like he's very well traveled. No. That was my weirdest part. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is very much a product of the culture wars. Yeah. And it makes all of these other pieces of a lot of romance novels so much more obvious because it's got this project that I think it's aware of. Like I think a lot of times this can be pedagogical without being like aware of it but this book is very aware of it. Yeah it's like what happens when women are in boardrooms? It means that nurseries are empty. And I was like ugh stop hating on Baby Boom. You know don't. Baby Boom the movie starring What's her name? She defends Woody Allen too Diane. much. Diane. Keaton. Yes. She defends Woody Allen too much. Way too much. Cancelled. But like that's essentially what this book felt like to me where it's like men are always working and I was like if women start working what, 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 who's gonna be left to not work? No one. 
No one. Well, there's her no man. No man. I mean, it's well written. I guess if you want to get into the sinsters, I would say a perfect lover is dealing with this question with more care intact, but the answer doesn't change. So that sucks. Also, the murder is better and more active. You get more dead bodies on the scene. Yeah, this is a no for me. You know, it's kind of a bummer. She's such a good writer, but her project is so disappointing. First ice wine in the can and it's a no Nomance. That might happen a lot. Oh, hang on. Okay, so 1998. Oh, yeah, our context. Context. In 1998, the 70th Academy Awards, Best Picture, Titanic. So, like, Titanic, whatever. But the thing that should get you is that Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt won Best Actor, Best Actress, respectively, for as good as it gets. Yeah. So, like, this book is speaking into that moment. Oh, shit. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's won Best Original Screenplay for Good Wow. Wow. The 70th Academy Awards were really a landmark because I think of Titanic as good as it gets and Goodwill Hunting as, like, these moments of cinema recent history that are like, bah, you know? Yeah. Oh, my God. This is actually fascinating. I think of this book as being, like, so much older than that. But as I mentioned before, 1998 is a year I remember very well. I remember going to the theaters to watch As Good As It Gets and Titanic. Shit, you were allowed to watch As Good As It Gets? I definitely saw Titanic, but I needed... In the theaters. Parental permission. I went with my family. We saw it on a Saturday matinee. Wow. Titanic won 16 Academy Awards that year. Yeah. James Cameron is a innovator. He is an innovator. I have a lot to say on James Cameron. Catherine Bigelow, better movie maker. But also really loves dude flicks and like dude stories. Catherine Bigelow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where it's like you take the ladies out because you're going to do the ladies wrong, so just don't have them and like I understand that impulse it's one of the reasons why I really like the expendables and other like crazy dude movies it's like don't even have women if you're gonna write them incorrectly or badly or like you have to have a woman yeah but like you know she only has 10 seconds of screen time so really the romance is between Jason Statham and Sylvester Stallone's continuing facial reconstruction. What won the Grammys? Oh, great question. It was only the 40th Grammys. Sunny Came Home won Sunny Record of home. the Year. <laughs> you just really need to hear Record of the Year nominations. Okay, so Sunny Came Home won. Where Have All the Cowboys what? Gone was nominated. Every Day is a Winding Road also nominated. Mbop also nominated. All these strong female singers. And I Believe I Can Fly. <laughs> Okay, so Song of the Year, Sunny Came Home, but also nominated Don't Speak, How Do I Live, Building a Mystery, one best (laughs) female pop vocal performance. It's a really good Sarah McLaughlin song. Foolish Games was nominated in that category. Mm. Best male pop vocal performance. I'm ready. Are you? Candle in the Wind, 1997. When he redid it. For Diana. Diana, Princess Die. Yeah, Princess Die. Every Time I Close My Eyes was also Fly Like an Eagle by Seal and Barely Breathing. Are you ready for the best pop performance by a duo or group with vocal? Yes! Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai. Jamiroquai! Tell you what, I had the center stage soundtrack, which is where I first heard Jamiroquai, and then I got their album. And was like, this is amazing! And we were just like... <laughs> Furiously. <laughs> I did a masturbation gesture. <laughs> so true, though. Also, Mbop and Don't Speak and Anybody See My Baby are also on. Duos. No, no, Anybody See My Baby. It's by the Rolling Stones. Oh, shit. Best Pop Instrumental, Last Dance, Sarah McLaughlin. She took home two Grammys in 1998. She won the 
those pictures. Her arms overfloweth with Grammys and she's got her little belly shirt with her evening gown look. She sure did. This has crazy historical context because I'm thinking this is It's actually like, really helpful historical context. I think, I'm thinking of like a 1992 world, but this was 98. This is so regressive. Did you hear all of those female singers who were nominated for album of the year? Along Pretty with much all Lilith Fair performances. All of them are Lilith Fair performances. Also Lilith Fair, anytime you want to come back. <laughs> Specifically to Chicago. Maybe we should make Lilith Palooza thing. Where during Lollapalooza in Edgewater we throw Lilith Palooza. Yes. A hundred percent on board. Contribute to our Patreon or just show up and we will finally if you do give us three million dollars. We don't on even our Patreon will mm-hmm. make Lilith Palooza happen. And I will definitely sing and dance back up to Morgan's acapella version <laughs> of you know oh I thought you were gonna say it no you have to knock sing. on wood there you go yeah Lilith Fair during Lollapalooza it's just a bunch of ladies throwing down Lilith Palooza Lilith Palooza we'll talk about romance novels why don't we just call it Lillapalooza Lillapalooza because it should be Lilith Fairs Lilith Palooza Lilith Palooza yeah we'll throw down we'll have romance novels we'll you know sing songs have ice wine Lilith Palooza is maybe the best idea we've ever had it's pretty up there I can't think of a better one right now frankly we're gonna go ahead and put it on our Patreon if, if we raise three million dollars. I think we can do it for three thousand. No, man. We want it to be a classy affair. Three thousand dollars is super classy. Girl, no, it's not. How much Franzia can we get? It's 1998 up in here. You want it to feel like 1998? Isabel, you could get a shitty party at my venue for $3,000. It's going to be $3 million. Think about all the people you have to bribe in Chicago to put a fucking festival on. Just my new alderman, Andre Vasquez. I got your number, friend. You've been and texting the park me. Apartment, you have to bribe them. That's true. And then you got to get your equipment. Oh, I don't even know how much that shit costs. I have no idea. I, I, music we is haven't not even my talked venue. about paying the artists. That's true. And who do we want besides Sarah McLaughlin? Obviously, she's our headliner but and like we're stupid dicks who believe in fair work for fair wages we sure so. do I mean if we could get Regina Spector perfect perfect for Lilith Palooza who else who's our dream cast of Lilith Palooza I would want a, a no doubt reunion no doubt it's a like, big deal that for would be me. great I would love that um, Sarah Jewel. McLaughlin Jewel Bjork ugh York would be great. Holy shit, Yoko Ono. Yoko Ono would be outstanding. Yoko Ono would be like a real like line in the sand for every person with a penis and every woman who doesn't have a penis mm. but still feels aligned with the penis havers. Janelle Monae. Janelle Monae all day. That's actually a really good lineup. Grimes. Mm. I think she broke up with Tesla. That makes sense. Oh, Jenny Lewis. <gasps> Jenny Lewis. Oh, that'd be so Nico good. Case. No, I'm too scared oh. to meet her. I'm too scared. That would be so Alicia good. Alicia Keys. Alicia Keys. And then if we get Ingrid Michaelson too. <laughs> We've got to get the poor lady who they always make sing at the Academy Awards. Not gonna write you a love what? song. She's got Waitress now. Oh yeah, not Vanessa Carlton, but the other one. But let's go ahead and get Vanessa Carlton. Obviously. <laughs> I mean, making my way downtown. And like, what's the point of having a Lilith Palooza if we don't have Erica Badu there? No point, frankly. And Mavis Staples? Let's like fucking bring it home. Let's bring it home. Let's think of all the Chicago-based acts. That's a really great idea. Sorry this podcast has devolved. But also like, what romance writers would we want to be at Lilith Fair? (laughs) Obviously Kathleen Winowitz. I want to shake that woman's hand. Well, now we're just talking about dinner parties. (laughs) Lilith Fair would be a dinner party. There'd be apps. (laughs) All right. Loosen your stays. But never your Lilith Paloozas. Mwah!
Whoa, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week.